if you turn on your microphone. <laughs> if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I've had the privilege over nearly the last 10 years of pastoring a church that is extraordinarily biblically knowledgeable. I would say that if we were having some kind of Bible quiz bowl or Bible jeopardy in town and we were populating our quiz bowl team, that I would be perfectly content selecting people just from Rocky Mount Bible Church. And I like our odds competing around town. And that's a pretty exciting thing. As a preacher, it gives me opportunities that I may not get elsewhere. We are allowed to get, I am as a preacher, allowed to get like zero to nerdy in 3.5 seconds on occasion. Or we can talk about the original languages or historical theology or any number of things that might feel mundane or boring in other churches I'm allowed to talk about here. And generally speaking, there is somebody who will, I think, find that interesting. That's a privilege of pastoring a church that is biblically knowledgeable. But there is an inherent danger, I think, for churches that are as knowledgeable as our church is. And that danger is that we can, if we are not careful, we can intellectualize the faith. We have been called to an enormous task as a church universal-wide and as a church here at Rocky Mount Bible and as individuals participating here in the body of Christ, we have been called to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the very ends of the earth. And if we're not careful for all of the things that we know, we could consider that task by the volume of our knowledge or in a very discriminating and intelligent way think through what we hear. But we've been called to do something, something simple, something clear, something direct. We have been called to take the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, the hope that comes exclusively through him, to take that good news and to proclaim it to anyone who would hear it. That's what we've been called to do. We have been called to participate in what is commonly known as the mission of God, to work alongside our sovereign and king, to invite all of his image bearers into his kingdom. And this morning, and for the next few weeks, we're asking the question, what is our role in the mission of God? This first week, we're talking about right motivations in the mission of God. Next week, we'll talk about mission in the Old Testament. The third week, we'll talk about mission in the New Testament. And the last week, before Sasha Sutsarov and the following week, Al Nucheroni is able to visit with us and share with us what's going on in gospel work around the world. That final week of my preaching in this series will be asking the question, if God is sovereign, then what does that mean? What are the implications for us sharing the gospel? This week we're talking about motivations and uh, a passage that's not our primary passage but one that uh, has occurred to me as extraordinarily important is here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, I'll just read it to you if you want to listen. 
He says in verse 16, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you will gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For if you bear with someone who makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face, to my shame I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship and through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. I read that passage, and many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with what Paul writes there at the end of 2 Corinthians. And it's impossible not to wonder, how does Paul keep going? What motivates Paul? What gets Paul up in the morning? How is he able to endure all of the unconscionable tragedies that he has endured and still set himself up with the possibility that he might have to endure more? To take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ has wrecked Paul's life, has marred Paul's body, has destroyed Paul's reputation. He's being afflicted on all sides. Why does he keep going? He keeps going, and this is key, because he has given to him by God a deep-seated affection for the people to whom he ministers. He loves them. There are any number of passages that we could explore thinking about love as the motivation for what we've been called to do. But maybe the best and what is one of absolutely my favorite passages in the whole New Testament is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We read it earlier. Thinking through the first, say, 16 verses or so there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is early on in Paul's ministry. This is early on in his uh, witness around the world. He's writing to the Thessalonian church, and he says in verse 1, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, 
but just as we have been approved by God. And you'll note here, a number of times he relates his work to God's commissioning, God's approval, God sending the message. God is the originator of this proclamation, right? We had boldness in God. We were approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so to speak, not as to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Verse 5. For we never came with flattery, as you know, or pretext for greed. God is our witness. It is God who's validating the entirety of the mission. It's impossible to make it through these verses and not see Paul's appeal to God as the validator of everything that he's doing. Verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles. So, verse 8. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. <coughs> what keeps Paul moving? It's this. Love fuels his obedience, and love fuels our obedience in the mission of God. Love and love alone will let you get knocked down and keep you getting back up. Love that you have received from God and the love that is from him that is welling up within you for the people around you, your family and your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Love is the only thing that will sustain you long term. Love, love is the reason why Paul was shipwrecked and crawled up along the shore and made his way further into the journey. Love is what helped him to be, receive those lashes over and over and over again and keep moving to the next city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love is the reason why he could be shunned by the entirety of his nation from inside and without and yet set him back on the road to hit the next town and the next city and the next synagogue and the next gathering to share with them that there is only hope in Jesus Christ. Love, love kept Paul going. Love will keep you going too. That's the thrust of this passage. Now, it's interesting how Paul arranges that. He talks about what doesn't motivate him in the first few verses, and then he talks about what does motivate him, and finally we'll ask the question, like we ask almost every week, well, what does that mean for us here in the church? What didn't motivate Paul? What does motivate Paul? And then why is that good news for us? How do we live in light of what we've learned in the first two sections? First, he says what doesn't motivate him. He says in verses 4 and 5 that he's not motivated by the desire to please the people around him or to flatter them, right? He says here at the beginning of verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. And then he tells us, what are those attempts to deceive? What would that look like? And he illustrates that. Three things. First, we have not come to seek your approval or to flatter the people around you. We haven't come to puff you up. We haven't come to make you feel better about you. We haven't come to, in a hollow and shallow way, ingrain ourselves into the community and ingratiate ourselves in such a way for you to have lofty but profane things to think about us. We haven't come to deceive you, to please you, or to flatter you. We've come to tell you the truth. Now, 
That's a startling thing that Paul says here at the beginning of this passage. Because he knows, like we know, that if you are really going to preach the gospel, it is going to be to hardened hearts, extraordinarily offensive. It's going to be really, really bad news before it's embraced as really, really good news. Uh, my wife tells the story of how she became a follower of Jesus in her early days at East Carolina, and I've heard stories like this one over and over again. Someone shares with her the gospel, the bad news first. You're a sinner separated from God because of your rebellion. You are not in right relationship with him because you have chosen to violate his character and his law. And so you are separated from him and, and doomed to an eternity apart from him unless you would repent of your sin. I remember my wife telling me about how she came to follow Jesus Christ and it was so soon after that that she understood that by repenting of your sin and following Jesus Christ you receive new life and life abundantly. But the first time somebody told her aggressively, you're a sinner. What do you mean I'm a sinner? How dare you? What in the world are you saying? I'm a pretty nice person. Don't you understand? I give to this charity and I donate this time and I do this. Maybe you're wonderful, but you're still separated from God because his standard is perfection. And Paul is saying, essentially, we didn't come to share with you just pleasantries or to flatter you because we know at the heart of sharing the gospel, there is offense to those hearts who are hardened against it. It is treacherously opposed to flattery to tell people that they will spend an eternity apart from God and that it is their fault unless they would repent and follow Jesus Christ. Paul says, we've come to bring you the truth. The truth is dirty and gritty. It's going to get better, but it's going to get worse first. Let me explain to you why. Secondly, he says that he wasn't motivated by greed. Take a look at verse 5. <coughs> Excuse me. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. And he says, not only did we not come with a pretext for greed, God himself is our witness. Now, uh, I love watching televangelists, right? And there are people on, uh, and I think uh, if you have Suddenlink here in Rocky Mount, it's Channel 15 and Channel 29, uh, Daystar and Trinity Broadcasting Network, and Again, why they call it Trinity Broadcasting Network when none of the people are Trinitarian, I'll never know. Uh, but I love doing this, and occasionally you'll find somebody who is solid, evangelical, preaching and teaching the Bible, but more often than not, it's the Isle of Misfit Toys, right? Theologically speaking. And I saw uh, one of my favorite absolute nuts on the channel. Uh, his name is Kenneth Copeland, and Kenneth Copeland is a verifiable heretic. He has, for decades throughout his ministry, preached a false gospel. Uh, and uh, because my friends know that I uh, obsessively cannot stop myself from watching uh, one false gospel preacher after another and just getting riled up and my anxiety and blood pressure just skyrocketing sitting there in my living room, right? Um, they sent me a clip of Kenneth Copeland being interviewed a couple of days ago by, uh, I think it was Entertainment Tonight or Inside, no, it was Inside Edition, Inside Edition. Kenneth Copeland is getting ready to get on his private jet. It costs $25 million. Kenneth Copeland did not pay a penny for that plane. In fact, he got up in front of his congregation. He told all the people to whom he preaches, hey, if you would only have enough faith, I need you to send a check to me 
and we're going to take that check and we're going to deposit it into the ministry and absolutely you should go home and Google that. Not right now, not on my Wi-Fi. Keep paying attention, lock in for a few minutes. Kenneth Copeland talking to the woman from Inside Edition. It is absolutely bizarre. And she comes right out of the gate. Hey, that's a nice jet. Why do you need a $25 million plane? And it just gets worse and worse from there. I remember uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago watching an interview with Rod Parsley where he was talking about, I remember exactly what it was, it was 2008. Rod Parsley, big prosperity gospel preacher from Columbus, Ohio, is preaching 2008. It's the year of God's blessing. And if you would like to receive the blessings that God has in store for you, I need you to send a check to our ministry for $2,008. And if you don't have $2,008, then send uh, $200.80. And if you don't have $200.80, send $20.08. And I'm thinking, uh, keep, keep going, right? <laughs> I got a uh, uh, like a buck and change. That's about how I'm uh, committed to this. Cruflo Dollar, a couple of years ago, decides he needs a new jet, $65 million. These guys are getting rich on the backs of naive believers who understand their responsibility to faith in Christ is to support the lifestyle of the chosen heretic that they have attached themselves to. These guys are criminals. Not only legally, but morally, biblically. They are swindling the sheep and the most vulnerable among them, not Paul. Paul did not come to get rich. Paul isn't here to take your money. Paul is here to give you something to give you the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not here to flatter you. He's not here to take your money. And he isn't motivated by the glory of ministry. He says in verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now, he distinguishes here between authority that is inherent to him as an apostle. He's been commissioned specifically by Jesus Christ. He has a certain amount of authority that he can exercise over the church but he's not come to use that authority and to abuse it in order to get glory from the people. My uncle. You've heard me talk about my mom's side of the family. All of them. Deeply charismatic Pentecostals, right? My grandfather and four of my uncles all pastor charismatic churches uh, between Ohio and Kentucky. And I mean like stomping, shouting, walking on the backs of the pews, uh, leaping, holy laughter, holy clapping, holy, all, the whole gamut of things, right? Deeply Pentecostal churches. And I have an uncle. It's my mom's sister's husband. His brother pastored big church in Kentucky. Five or six hundred people. That is enormous in rural Kentucky. Uh, we might call that niche the hollow, back in the hollow. They call it the holler, right? We're back in the holler. So back in the holler, he pastors a church of five or six hundred people, and he's a virtual celebrity. His wife had been very seriously ill for many, many years, and it came out that, frustrated with his marriage and his sick wife, he had been sleeping with the secretary for year after year after year after year. And so the people who loved this celebrity pastor in the community reluctantly fired him. 
And I saw him in Ohio. We went to visit family in Ohio, and I saw him one time, and I said, you know, Harold, how you doing? Well, you know, uh, good times and bad times. And I said, so what do you got going on? And he goes, well, I'm working construction now, but I'm really trying to get back in the church. And I said, oh, really? And I expected some story of deep and profound repentance and humility and penitence. And, and instead, he started talking about the lifestyle that he missed before. He said, you have no idea how big I was back in small town Holler, Kentucky. You see that car? And he pointed to the car out in front of my grandfather's house. That's a Lincoln Town car. That's a $50,000 car. You know how much I paid for it? $1. I mentioned my congregation. I needed a car. And you know what? The next day, brand new, keys, title, deed, and all of that sitting right out front of the church. Son, I ate steak six days a week. I went to the nicest restaurants in town. I never paid for a meal. And then I go to church on Sunday. And here's where I expected, I, I anticipated the but, right? The contrast. The but ministry is really what I miss. And he said, you know, I got up at church on Sunday and the lights are so bright and it get hot in the room and I start preaching and it start working in the room. You could feel the room. I had them all. And they'd start bouncing and I'd start bouncing and I'd start preaching and you knew it was on. And I thought, Harold, you fool. He never once mentioned Jesus. He never once mentioned the gospel. He never once mentioned the Bible. Harold loved the glory that he had accrued for himself in that small community in the backwoods of Kentucky. Harold was in it for Harold. Not Paul. Paul couldn't care less about the glory. Paul was in it for them. Paul was in it for Christ. And the love that he received from Christ compelled him to love the people to whom he ministered. That's what kept Paul going. In fact, he says, as he describes his love, verse 8, that the true motivation that lies behind his ministry was he loves them. He loves them. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Uh, now, uh, it, it's worth here taking a moment and talking about a translation issue. As a matter of translation philosophy, I like translations of the Bible that are more literal. There are some that are a little more dynamic, like the New Living Translation or uh, the Message, which is a paraphrase and not really a, a translation, but a nice paraphrase. The NIV is a little more dynamic. They're not as wooden and literal and in deep fidelity to precise word translation. So I, I like the ESV. It's what I preach from. All through Bible college and seminary, we use the New American Standard. I really like that. I'm not poo-pooing the others. I'm just telling you what I like. Now, here Paul says at the beginning of verse 8 that we were uh, affectionately desirous of I've got a little bit of a bone to pick with that particular verbiage. Uh, maybe as literalistically as possible, we could render that, and we loved you in such a way, or in such a dynamic as this, right? Uh, I have never once um, sat across the living room from my wife and looked deep into her eyes and said, Oh, thou, my beloved, 
I am affectionately desirous of you, right? I've never hugged my kids goodnight at bed and said, oh, thee of my loins, how affectionately desirous I am of you, right? That's a weird way to put that. And I feel like the translators of the ESV should have done better to give us something that actual humans who speak the English language would really say. What does he mean, I'm affectionately desirous of you, right? Uh, Paul is not doing his best precursor to Elizabethan Shakespearean. He's saying, I loved you. I loved you. I loved you so much. It's why I got up in the morning. I am glorifying God by loving you. I love you. I didn't come in here as a bully, like all the swagger of my apostolic authority and laying down the hammer. I love you. That's why I'm here. It makes me really nervous to be around pastors who you don't sense the love. I get nervous about that. Now, uh, part of what we're called to do in ministry, and if you were to read Ephesians 4, you know this is true. <coughs> part of my job is to train you to get you ready to do gospel work. That's part of why I'm here. To use the Bible to equip you to do what we've been called to do. But I've known people in ministry who approached it entirely, socially, philosophically, like drill sergeants. You need to get in here. You need to sit down and shut up. we got stuff to do. Let's move, right? And they are just beating their poor people to death. Now, I'm not arguing that sometimes you don't need to lay the hammer down. Sometimes you do. But if that is the only tool in your toolbox, I wonder if in ministry you understand passages like 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul loves them. Love is the motivation behind his ministry to them. And then he describes the kind of love that he has with them, right? But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. For you remember, verse 9, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are our witness, and God also, again, invoking God to validate his ministry. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. How does Paul describe the love that he has for them? He gives it a few different descriptors here. First, it's intensely personal and revealing. It's intensely personal and revealing. If you uh, look again at uh, verse 7, but we were gentle among you. Some of your translations might say we were like children among you. Either way, the point remains. There is a, a gentleness. There is an innocence about the love that he has them. And then if he couldn't find a more tender analogy, I don't know what it would be than here in verse 7, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Uh, one of the sweetest things I've ever seen in my life. Uh, when Annabelle was a baby and Laura would nurse her, Annabelle would wrap her arm around Laura's back and scratch her back. I just rub her back while she nursed. It was just... I don't know that there is a picture in all of humanity that describes a gentleness and a tenderness like a mother nursing her child. And that's the descriptor that Paul applies to his relationship with the Thessalonians. It's personal. It's intimate. It's kind. It's loving. He's taking care of them for the affection that he bears for them. It works extraordinarily hard, verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. 
Uh, I read a biography recently about Lyndon Johnson, President of the United States. And by all measures, uh, any biographer that would write anything about Lyndon Johnson, they would tell you, huge jerk. One of the meanest people on the planet, the absolute last person you'd ever want to work for. That he was tyrannical in the office, abusive to his staff. He could be exceptionally kind one moment and empirically nasty the next. But they all said the exact same thing about him, which was this. He was the first one in and the last one out. That he was unresting. He was unceasing. He was relentless about the work. Paul is relentless about the work. You know, he says, about our labor and our toil. It's not easy. It takes a lot of work. It takes a tremendous amount of effort. But here's the good news. You may be like me. I'm not the smartest person in the room. I'm not particularly clever. I'm not a tremendous wordsmith. Uh, I don't have a lot of personal charisma. I know this about myself. But I'm not going to get outworked. You don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the bravest. You don't have to be the most talented. You don't have to be the richest. You don't have to be the most charismatic. You don't have to be the most influential. You just have to keep your head down and work hard for the gospel. And Paul worked hard for the gospel. He was relentless for his love for the Thessalonians. Nothing was going to stop him. No mountain too high, no valley too low, right? We're dangerously close to Marvin Gaye here, but you understand the point. He just kept going and going and going and going and going. He worked hard. Uh, thirdly, it was verified through holy character. He says there in verse 10, You are our witnesses in God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you all. God knew. You also know. We weren't willy-nilly about this thing. We were practicing what we were preaching. It transformed the people who receive it, verses 12 through 16. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you, verse 12, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. He loved them, and he worked hard, and the gospel that he preached changed their lives. And finally, we find in verse 4, underpinning all of this, not love for its own sake. It's that we have been loved by God and our desire is to glorify Him. For our appeal didn't come from error or impunity, but just as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. To please Him. To do what He has called us to do for Him. That His fame that his glory might be over all the earth. When we put this banner up here, <coughs> you'll see this over my left shoulder, and we put this in our bulletin, we put it on our website, we put it on our Facebook page, and we put it on everything that has our name on it. We exist to proclaim God's glory and grace. 
It is not because we've tried to figure out something clever and succinct just to throw on a banner so that we can have a mission statement so that we can say we have a mission statement. It is to distill what we find in Scripture that we are to be about. All the work, all the love, all the endurance is not for its own sake. We were made to glorify Him. And everything that Paul does, including all of the affections that are laid out here in 1 Thessalonians 2, ultimately Paul's not trying to work even for the Thessalonians themselves. He's working for Him. He's working for God. Real love is a love that is grounded in the desire to glorify God. That is maybe its defining characteristic. I love my wife not for love's own sake, but that in our union I might glorify him. I love my children not only because they're lovable, but that in that relationship I might glorify God. I love you in this body of Christ, not only because you're really wonderful to be around, and most of you are, <laughs> but because in this setup that God has designed, we know that by it we might glorify Him. I am in it for you, but ultimately I am in it for Christ. Let his name be glorified among the nations. Let him receive all of the glory, all of the credit, all the attention, all of the worship. What does that mean for you? Two things. If you want to share the gospel with people around you, with the expectation of developing meaningful relationships, be prepared for it to be really difficult. Be prepared for it to be really difficult. Anything easy isn't worth anything. It may be time-consuming, exhausting, confusing, draining, dangerous, work born from a vulnerability that might leave you financially ruined, physically broken, and emotionally worn out. If it's easy for you, my guess is that you may not really be doing it. I go to the gym occasionally and I'm at Planet Fitness and I hear people talk about the gym and how draining it is. And I suppose it could be. But that's not been my experience. Because I'm on the treadmill at a only slightly uncomfortable pace in the air conditioning with the giant fans drinking my ice cold water watching reruns of Blue Bloods on my phone, right? This is how I go to the gym. It's not gut-wrenching for me. I have not gone full Jillian Michaels on this deal, right? Uh, me and Tom Selleck are hanging out at the gym. Right? It's fairly easy for me. If ministry is really easy for you, maybe it's because what you're doing isn't the same thing that's described as what Paul's doing here in the New Testament. If you never get hurt, if you never get burned, if you're just able to sleep easy through the whole night, maybe it's time to reassess what you're doing and why you're doing it. It's going to wear you out. Expect that. Don't be surprised 
when you invest in people, sharing not only the gospel, but your own lives as well, Paul says. If you are courageous enough to be that vulnerable, you're going to find it's going to be really hard. Don't be surprised when that happens. Secondly, if you want to make a difference in the world, fulfilling the Great Commission, only working to please God will sustain you. Only working to please God will sustain you. <coughs> uh, we worked at a church in Texas before coming here. And we had a student, and I think it's fair enough to say that no one in Texas is ever going to listen to this broadcast. Uh, but we had a student in that college ministry, and his name was Kenneth. And Kenneth did everything wrong. I don't know if he was a believer or not. I know he was a professing believer. That kid was hammered, drunk, out of his mind, blitzed, couldn't see straight, eyes crossed, drunk, like six days a week. He'd come to church, and you could I knew what kind of pot he was smoking before he got down the hallway, because it just reeked, right? Uh, he's dating this girl, but he's sleeping with this girl, and there's half a dozen others, and it's just one, life's just one big party of bad choices. And I got it in my head that Kenneth is going to be my project. The, the brunt of my intentionality is going into Kenneth. Now, I didn't love Kenneth, not really. Kenneth just annoyed the crap out of me, philosophically. And so I started spending a lot of time with him. I'd buy him lunch. We'd pick him up. He'd come over to the house. I'd be at his house. We traded books. We traded DVDs. We... Man, I tried. I really did. He'd come to the college class, and he'd come Sunday morning sometimes, and he'd come on Thursday nights, which is our big outreach night, and he'd come to all of our events, and he'd go on trips and all that. And it never made any, not single, one modicum of difference in the way that he lived, in the way that he talked, in the way that he interacted with anyone else. None. And the more I invested in him, and the more he continued to reject everything the Bible had to say, the angrier and the angrier and the angrier I got. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you exactly why. And I can only see it now in hindsight because I couldn't see it then. I did not have a holy indignation that he was living a life contrary to the Bible. That wasn't it. I was upset because I was dumping a lot of time and energy and effort into Kenneth and I wasn't seeing any results. He wasn't listening to me. He wasn't respecting me. If only he would do what I told him to do. Then it would scratch that itch I had, right? It was about me. It wasn't about him. I didn't love him. I just wanted to fix him. That's not the gospel. That's not the pattern that Paul lays out in 1 Thessalonians 2. It's love. Love, it's love. It is the only thing that will sustain you. Because these people, you invest in them, they will occasionally let you down. If you need them to do well to keep you going, you're going to be out of this game really quick. I guarantee it. You will let you down. If you are waiting for you to achieve the lofty vision of what you could be in order to keep you motivated, you're going to be out instantaneously. 
But if you desire to serve him and glorify him, he is the only figure in the universe that will never let you down, who will always be what he says he is and will always do what he says he will do. If you seek to glorify him, that will sustain you. And it's the only thing I promise you. So we're going to do something this week. I've got some note cards. I think about 200, which is a little ambitious maybe for the room. But I'm nothing if not an optimist. So I'm going to pass these around. I'm going to ask you to do this. Take one. There are lots of colors there. Parents, help your kids pick one and keep moving. Right? I'm going to ask you to do uh, two things with this little note card <coughs> for the month of June. I'm going to ask you to take a few moments, and we're going to do it right now, and write down on the card 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves because you had become very dear to us. I'm going to at least let you start that right now. So you can do that now. And maybe you don't want to write affectionately desirous of you, or maybe you do because you really like Downton Abbey, and that sounds like some figure on that show for you, right? Maybe you want to serve, we loved you to such a degree, however you want to phrase that. I just want you to write that on one side of the card. That verse. I want you to keep that verse in mind. Okay? And then on the other side of the card, I want you to write down the names of a couple of people that you would like to share the gospel with. Maybe it's a friend, family member, co-worker. Maybe it's a neighbor, somebody who lives on your street. Maybe it's somebody in your house. And I'm going to ask you to do this. A minute, two minutes, three minutes a day, right? This is not taxing. You can squeeze this in between whatever you're binging on Netflix and whatever other responsibilities you have, right? I want you to write 1 Thessalonians 2, 8 on one side and just a couple of names on the other. And I want you to pray this prayer. God, help me to know that I have been loved and help me to love these people better than I have ever loved them before. Help me to love them more and more and more. And for the whole month of June, I want you to pray that prayer. I want you to look at those names and pray, Lord, help me to love that person like I have been loved. Help me to love like Paul loved the Thessalonians. Help me to love them as you love them. Help me to love them more and more and more. I tell you to stick it in your Bible, but I know that some of you put your Bible down Sunday afternoon and don't pick it up until the next week. So if you are in the habit of actually reading your Bibles throughout the week, maybe keep it in your Bible. And uh, maybe if you don't, this is a great thing to stick in your purse or in your wallet or on the dash of your truck or your car. Just leave it on there. If you're not in the habit of praying for long periods of time throughout the day, right? start with a minute. Gabe Eamon gets up 4 o'clock every morning, prays for two hours. It's his, I appreciate that. He's a lot more mature than I am. 
If you're not as mature as Gabe is, start with a minute and just keep that in your pocket. Being affectionately desirous of you, we shared with you not only the gospel, but our own lives as well. Help me to love them. God, I pray. That's where we'll start. Father, renew our affections as we live this new life in Christ who has loved us even in as much as he has given himself for us. Help us to love others. I pray that our love for others and our love for you and the desire that we have to glorify you would fuel us and sustain us and keep us, get us up in the morning, help us to get, when we are knocked down, back on our feet again and to keep going. Again and again and again. Let love be the source of our motivation, our love for you and our love for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.